0: I love that hymn by Martin Luther. Of course, it was originally written in German. Uh, kind of neat story behind that. That melody was actually an old pub song. So uh, he was trying to get those Germans who love their beer uh, to come to church. So <laughs> he sang a wonderful, wonderful reformed hymn. You know, every Sunday in our sanctuary, uh, we often offer the peace of Christ. We greet one another by passing the peace of Christ. We say, the peace of Christ be with you. And of course, the response is... So with you. Let's do that again. Peace of Christ be with you. And of course we say that because as we uh, read in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 20, Jesus appears, the risen Jesus appears before his disciples. When they're in a room behind locked doors, Jesus all of a sudden appears, and they're freaking out, of course, because, you know, Jesus, you were dead, and now you're here, and wasn't the door locked? How did you get in here? And, And he says, peace be with you. And it's interesting, actually, before that, in John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Back then, peace, a Hebrew word shalom is the word for peace. It means peace, it means wholeness, it means This sense of contentment that comes with being in God's presence. And Hebrews and Jews would often greet one another by saying, peace, shalom, shalom with you. But Jesus is saying, I'm not just passing that obligatory peace. No, my peace I give to you. Not just that old peace. It's kind of like today, we'll see someone that we know and and we're walking by and we'll say, hey, how you doing? And of course, we keep walking and we're hoping they're going to say fine or good so we can keep going, you know. But, uh, you know, we kind of have these obligatory uh, greetings that we do, and we're not always really paying attention to, to, to how they're doing. And, and so that's how shalom had been. They would say, shalom, shalom, and, and it was just kind of obligatory. It doesn't really mean, begin to mean anything. But Jesus makes the point that my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, not that temporary peace, but I give you an eternal peace that lasts forever. And of course, peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit, Right? But we don't always experience Christ's peace, do we? We don't always feel that peace. We don't always exhibit his peace, do we? What is it that tends to disrupt your peace? On July 3rd, my family and I, we uh, decided to go to Denver, Colorado. We've been invited to stay with some friends uh, in Denver to celebrate the 4th of July with them. And so... We made plans the night before on the 2nd. We said, hey, we're going to leave at 9 a.m. so we can get there in time and have some fellowship and grab dinner. And we had all these plans, right? Well, we didn't leave at 9. We let around 10, 15, 10, 30, almost 11. Because, you know, packing is a stressful uh, operation in my home. Uh, you know, we're always scrambling. We get this bag and we got it all in. Oh, wait, don't forget this. Don't forget that. And we end up packing more than we need. And, of course, then we realized, oh, wait, there's food in the refrigerator, and it might go bad, so we better clear that out so it doesn't stink up the whole place, and da-da-da. And just, it just takes forever, finally, to get in the road. And, of course, we, you know, we got to, had a great time in, in uh, Denver, Colorado uh, with our friends, and then we decided we were going to drive up to uh, South Dakota, uh, to Keystone, South Dakota, specifically to go to Mount Rushmore. And so we got in the car and we drove. It's about six hours from, uh, from uh, Denver to get to uh, Keystone, South Dakota. But as I'm driving, this torrential rainpour comes down and I'm on this highway and I don't know it. I'm not familiar with it. And it's in the middle of nowhere. It's in, Wyoming is like nowhere. I mean, like... I grew up in West Texas, Midland feels like nowhere, but like, this is nowhere. I mean, it was nowhere. And we had spent, the, we'd driven through Cheyenne, which is the capital, and there's like 50,000 people in Cheyenne. I'm like, that's your capital? 50,000 people? I mean, there's nothing in Wyoming. So we were driving through Wyoming, it's raining, and I'm, I'm, I can tell I'm hydro you know, playing every now and then. I'm like, oh man, I'm going to be in a wreck with no one to hit. I'm just going to be out here, <laughs> fall off the side of the road, It was horrible. And I'm getting nervous and anxious, and you know, bad weather, unfamiliar road, that can disrupt my peace. What disrupts your peace? Of course, then we got to South Dakota, and we checked in our hotel, and, and the hotel owner was very nice and, and warm and welcoming to us, and then she uh, recommended a restaurant that we might go to, and so I said, oh, okay, great, and it was a restaurant that was uh, kind of like an old saloon that had live music, and we had dinner, and it was great dinner, and the music was great, I even got a CD, and then the bill came, and I was like, whoa, hey, I didn't, you know, <laughs> that disrupted my peace, right, and... Uh, and of course, you know, we had a great time. We actually have a picture I want to share with you. It was a great time Mount Rushmore. You get to go. It's just amazing. And doesn't that look like a picture of a peaceful family? But my wife is laughing because we got in the car, right? And it wasn't so peaceful. Because in the car, with all these hours to drive back to Denver and Amarillo, you know, there's arguments over what song we're going to listen to, what CD. And the kids are arguing about what movie they're going to watch. And they're arguing about, well, who's got the Nexus and the, the tablet and all this? And where are we going to eat next? And arguments and, and discord and, and complaining. That, that can disrupt my peace. What is it that disrupts your peace today? I don't know where you are, where you're coming from, but perhaps... You're in the midst of some conflict with someone at work. Maybe you're in some conflict with someone at home. Maybe you're concerned about finances. I haven't gotten that credit card bill back yet, man, I know it's gonna be high. (laughs) Maybe you're concerned about someone's health, a loved one who's got a diagnosis that they're not exactly sure how it's going to be handled. What is it that disrupts your peace? It's true the Prince of Peace has come to this world to give us peace, but the fact is we live in a fallen and broken world If you live long enough, your peace is going to be disrupted. So what are we to do in the midst of those stressful times, in the midst of those anxious times? What are we to do? How are we to respond? To find out how we might have peace amidst the storm, how we might experience God's joy amidst the storms of life. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter three, beginning at verse 17. It may be found on page 1249 of your Pew Bible, Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 17. However, before I read God's Word, let's call upon His Holy Spirit to open our hearts, minds, the reading and the preaching of His Holy Word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for the great gift of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you thanks, O Lord, for your Holy Spirit that inspired Paul to put pen to paper as he sought to encourage the church in Philippi. We pray, Lord, that as we read your words today, that they might encourage us to walk in a way that we reflect your peace each and every day. Oh God, I pray that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to see what you want us to see, open our ears to hear what you want us to hear, and open our hearts and minds to be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. With the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Philippians chapter three, beginning at verse 17. Listen to the word of the Lord. Brothers, join me in imitating. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom... Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, a true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Think about these things, what you've learned and received and heard and seen me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Brothers, join in imitating me. That's a pretty bold statement, right? I mean, imitate me. I can't imagine as a Presbyterian minister who believes in the total depravity of man, which is basically affirming the teachings of Romans 3.23. that says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in and of myself, there's nothing that it would lead me to follow God. I need God to... Act in my life in a special way by His Holy Spirit to begin to move me towards God. Because on my own, I'm a pretty selfish person, and so I need God to do a work in me to move me towards God. I can't imagine telling anyone, even, even as a Presbyterian pastor, to imitate me because I'm a broken, fallen, sinful man. Right? I sin every day. Sometimes I'm not even aware when I do it. Right? I'm pretty good at it. I tell them to imitate Jesus. Right? I mean, imitate Jesus. Jesus was perfect. Imitate. Don't imitate me. Imitate Jesus. Paul says, imitate me. Now, Paul says that because back then in the first century, they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John yet because Philippians is written before those Gospels are written. And so they couldn't read about Jesus like we can today. They didn't have easy access to Bibles like we do today. They couldn't just read about Jesus. All they knew about Jesus is what Paul had told them about Jesus. And Paul had made a point that while he was with them, he sought to imitate Jesus. For in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read this. Paul writes, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul sought to imitate Jesus. In fact, that was one of the principal ways that they taught people back then. Jesus invites his disciples to come and follow me. And what he meant to say, when he said that, come follow me, he says, come do what I do. Come see how I live and live the same way. Are our lives worth imitation today? Are they worth being imitated the famous pastor and author john macarthur once said you're the only bible some unbelievers will ever read you're the only bible some unbelievers will ever read the fact is that despite the gideon's great efforts the fact is unbelievers probably won't just pick up a bible on their own they might go to a hotel room and it might be there but they're probably not going to just pick it up and start reading it but they will watch us they'll see how we live and how we respond to stress Are our lives worth imitating? Do we live a life that's worth imitating? When people look at us, do they see Jesus in us as we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Or do they see someone who, like the rest of our culture, is focused on earthly things and pursuing our own wants and our own needs rather than the kingdom of God? When they look at us, do they see someone who who simply declares that, G- who declares that Jesus is Lord of all of our lives, or simply someone who believes that Jesus is Lord of our Sunday mornings? When people look at us, what do they see? Because Paul says, imitate me. Do we live a life that's worth imitation? Of course, it's interesting, this whole pericope, this section of Scripture, Philippians three seventeen uh, to 4, 9 has imitation as the book ends. Paul begins, as I just read a moment ago, by saying, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Then in chapter four, verse nine, he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. What was it specifically that Paul was telling the church in Philippi to practice? What were the things that he wanted them to imitate Exactly. Do you remember the story of Paul's time in Philippi? We can read it in Acts 16. It's a powerful story. Paul, of course, in Acts 16, begins the church with a woman named Lydia, and she helps lead the church by hosting the, the church in her home. She has the gift of hospitality. She's a wealthy woman. And then Paul and Silas uh, are in the midst of sharing the gospel of Christ and they, they cast a demon out of a slave woman and, and ultimately they're in prison by that because the slave owners used to make money off of her ability to prophesy or whatever and so they, she can no longer prophesy because the demon has left her and so they, they throw him in prison and they're flogged and beaten and, and thrown into prison. And what is it? Do you remember what Paul and Silas do while they're in prison? Do they lash out? Do they grumble at God? Do they curse God? Do they fight back? Do they argue? Do they become angry? No, they offer praises to God. They worship God. They offer their prayers and praises to God. In the midst of a dark cell, in a city they didn't know, after having received severe beatings, they worship God. In fact, Paul writes his church, Philippians, he writes Philippians to the church in Philippi while he's in a Roman prison cell. And Paul knew that his his imprisonment may lead to his death. Yet in the midst of that, he tells them in in verse 4 of our text, Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say, rejoice. The Greek word is is in the imperative. It is a command. He is commanding us to rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say, rejoice. He knows that the church in Philippi is being persecuted, as he was persecuted while he was in Philippi. And he tells them, rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say, rejoice. Paul is clearly a man who practiced what he preached. Because you read through the book of Acts and you read through his letters, you'll see that Paul experienced great persecution in the midst of his ministry. He was flogged and he was whipped and he was uh, imprisoned and he was stoned and left for dead. And yet Paul continues to rejoice and worship God and offer prayers of thanksgiving to God. But that was Paul, right? I mean, he's like the super Christian. I mean, you can't expect us to do the same thing today, right? I I mean, would that work for us today? actually it does one of my good friends in this church Cody Kirby has a powerful testimony of how it's possible to rejoice in the midst of suffering I'm going to share that with you now
1: can I met um, in college actually in algebra class I remember telling God I give up I'm not gonna look for any more girls if you want me to be married then I guess you'll bring one to me but I'm I'm not going to look anymore. And uh, probably a month went by, and uh, she approached me uh, outside of class one day, and she gave me her number, and uh, she asked me if I wanted to, you know, if I wanted to call her, I could, and, you know, go out on a date or something, I guess. And she seemed very, very pure and genuine from the time that I did talk with her and visit with her, and she was good at math. <laughs> it was just real smooth. We didn't have any any problems at all. Um, nothing was trying to be somebody else. We were just really uh, clicking, you know. We had a lot of chemistry. We ended up getting engaged probably five months after that and uh, waited a year. And then we got married on my birthday. So I wouldn't forget the anniversary. So... <laughs> Rebecca and I were probably married for around eight years and she was she decided she wanted to move to uh, Amarillo because they offered the program for occupational therapist assistant uh, she finished the program and got a job and then she had a brain aneurysm I get a call from the co-worker he said dude Rebecca's on her way to the hospital by ambulance, she she just hit the floor, you know. You need to hurry up and get up there to the emergency room. I didn't have any peace going on in my life at that time that all I could think about was how much the ambulance was going to cost me. The doctor told me she had a massive brain aneurysm and we're, we're having to do emergency surgery to get the blood off of her brain. He said, it's going to be a miracle if she survives this operation. I get a text from another one of my best friends, and he says, Cody, you remember all the, the things that Rebecca has gone through in her life. He said, dude, God is with you. you know, and he said, the doctors are not the mighty physician, God is. You need to go get on your knees and pray. And so I dropped what I was doing. I went into another private room by myself, and I hit my knees. And I cried out to God, and I begged Him to not take my wife away from me. I decided to rejoice in the storm. I decided to raise my hands, and I didn't care who saw me. I did it in front of everybody. I was really overcome with joy at the time, but I also had a lot of pain at the same time. The pain does not go away. It's just that the joy helps to... Keep the pain down to where you can function. Little by little, she started coming back. They'd do one test, and then would come back good. And then they'd do another test, and then come back good. And it was just little baby steps throughout the whole thing. Just every little bitty thing that she did was a miracle. It was not taken lightly by anybody. It was like a baby taking her first step. People were rejoicing over a cough. I think staying focused on God is the main thing. You have different situations come up throughout the day that stress, that stress you out. There's a lot of things that you don't understand about why things happen. And you have to learn how to surrender that to God and trust Him, even if you don't, you're not comfortable doing that. There's no other choice. You can hold on to it. And you can become anxious and you can it will destroy you over time. She is doing extremely well, as far as I'm concerned, because she's content. Because she smiles. And it changes the whole room when you walk in there and, and that woman can smile at you. And she's been through what she's been through. God has told me before. Cody, do you see how you take care of your wife and how she can't give much back to you? He said, now I want you to put yourself in her shoes and know that I'm taking care of you the same way you're taking care of her, if not more so. Wow.
0: Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Cody's wife, Rebecca, now lives in a nursing home in Lubbock. Uh, Elder Stan Morris and I I got to visit uh, her about a, a year ago. And she recognized us, Uh, you can see the twinkle in her eyes, She, she smiled, but she can't talk the way she used to be able to talk. She can gesture and she can communicate, but she can't talk the way she used to be able to talk. She can't walk the way she used to be able to walk. But as Cody shared, she has peace. And in the midst of a horrible storm, in the midst of a trying time, Cody cried out to God and he... He decided to rejoice, to take these words to heart, and he rejoiced and offered prayers of supplication with thanksgiving. I shared when we began this sermon series that Philippians is really kind of a thank you note of of sorts. Uh, Paul writes the church in Philippi to thank them for their generosity. They have provided a great gift to him while he's in prison, and so he's writing a thank you note to them of sorts. This beautiful thank you note, he also seeks to encourage them, knowing that they're now facing persecution as well. And if you recall, the first Sunday that we preached on Philippians, I had everyone write out a thank you note to God, and we had you turn them in. And I was blessed to read every one of them that was turned in. They were were beautiful thank you notes. I just want to read a few to us today. Dear God, I'm so thankful for the sweet fact that no matter how hard I ran from you, No matter how many times I turned away from you, you never underlined, ever underlined, gave up on me. You continued to pursue me, love me, forgive me, and pour your grace on me. Thank you, God. I love you. This is written by a child. Dear God, I'm so thankful for being loved even when I was unloved by some. Thank you. This is written by one of the children from our children's home. Dear God, I'm so thankful for house parents, foster parents, family teachers, adoptive parents, sponsors, mentors, and anyone else I missed. People helping young kids have a home and a caring, loving family of their own. Dear God, I'm so thankful Thank you for your undying love and forgiveness. My walk has been treacherous, but I have so much to truly be thankful for. I joined, attended Sherry Lovato's Women's Bible Study this fall, and it truly has made me strive to be a better, more disciplined Christian. I have Sherry and Jan Hargrave to thanks. These ladies are awesome. Sherry and Jan have a faith that's worth imitating. Dear God, I'm so thankful for not always giving me what I want, And for what he teaches me through my disappointments. And this one particularly struck me. Dear God, I'm so thankful for cancer, your guidance, your mercy, your grace, your promises, your son. Written by another child. Dear God, I'm so thankful for you sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. There's a lot of misspellings, but he gets it. (laughs) This is the final one I want to share with you. I I personally liked a lot. Dear God, I'm so thankful for myself, family, friends, food, water, shelter, clothes, people. It's written by a child. The world, air, Jesus, and that the word of the Lord is forever. Amen? You say that enough, Isaiah 40, and it starts to be written on the hearts of our children. Why don't we spend more time thanking God? As counterintuitive as it may seem, in the midst of a trying time, we need to stop and we need to thank God for his blessings, for his presence. As German theologian and Dominican priest Meister Eckhart once wrote from the 13th century, if the only prayer you ever say in your life is thank you, that would be sufficient. When the hardship comes, when circumstances disrupt our peace, we need to turn to God as counterintuitive as it may seem, we need to rejoice and give thanks to God. Amid suffering, we need to praise God. One of the things that helps me personally do this is as I'm in the midst of stress or conflict, I will pause for a moment and I will just sing either out loud or quietly the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Y'all sound good. You should join the choir. After we rejoice, we should offer prayers of thanksgiving to God, recognizing God's goodness, God's constant presence with us. And then we make our request to God. But how can we offer praises to God and rejoice in prayers of thanksgiving in the midst of anxious times that seems so counterintuitive to us? How can we rejoice and offer prayers of thanksgiving when things aren't going our way? The key is found in verse eight of our text. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about These things. Is there anything or anyone who is more true, more honorable, more just, more pure, more lovely, more commendable, more excellent, more worthy than praise than Jesus Christ? As we face difficult times, we need to turn our hearts and minds to Jesus. After that, that's what Paul did. He thought about Jesus. But what specifically did Paul think about when he thought about Jesus in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trying times? Did he think about the moral and ethical teachings of Jesus that we find in the Sermon on the Mount? Maybe, but I doubt it. Paul probably wasn't at the Sermon on the Mount. Did he think about the time that Jesus washed the disciples' feet in in John 13, serving his disciples? Probably not, because Paul wasn't in that upper room in John 13. What was it that Paul specifically thought about when he thought about Jesus in the midst of persecution, in the midst of pain, in the midst of struggle? What was it he thought about? I believe the answer is is found in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 2. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The focus of Paul's message was Jesus Christ and him crucified. The focus of Jesus, Paul's ministry was Jesus Christ and him crucified. When Paul was being persecuted, when Paul was facing hard times, he thought about Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ. Because at the cross of Christ, we see a full demonstration of God's amazing love. At the cross of Christ, we see that our salvation has been secured. And at the cross of Christ, we know that we serve a Savior who has suffered on our behalf. And he empathizes with us when we go through hard times today. When we face hard times, like Paul, we need to turn our minds towards Jesus. Specifically, we should turn our hearts and minds towards the cross of Christ. Where we are reminded that God loves us because he loves us. As Paul writes to the church in in Rome, the church house churches in Rome, God demonstrates his great love toward us. And then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At the cross of Christ, we were reminded that our salvation has been secured. For on the third day, Jesus rose again, conquering sin and death on our behalf. He's paid the price for our sins. As Jesus said, it is finished. And so we have a heavenly home that awaits. And that's what Paul writes in verse 20 of our text. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In the midst of the challenges that this earth will bring, we could be earthly minded or we could be heavenly minded and focus our hearts and minds on Jesus Christ and his great love for us that we find at the cross of Christ. And we can be reminded that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And we can be reminded that we have a savior Who has suffered on our behalf, and He knows what it means to be abandoned and to suffer and to struggle and to go through pain. The next time you experience stress, anxiety, uncertainty, and your peace begins to be disrupted, may we, like the Apostle Paul, turn our hearts and minds towards Jesus, and in doing so, then begin to rejoice and praise God, giving thanks to God for His many blessings. And then we offer our supplication to God. And then we will experience the peace of Christ that truly passes all understanding. And then we will have a faith that's worth imitating. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for the great gift of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth to be for us the way, the truth, and life. We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings you've bestowed upon us, Lord. We recognize that we are probably not grateful enough. So, Lord, I pray that in our spiritual practices, we might take the time we need each and every day to give thanks to you, to rejoice always. As Paul says again, he says rejoice. May we take that command seriously. May we take time each and every day to praise you, to honor you, to bring glory to you. And knowing that in your praise and in praise of you and in thanksgiving to you, In our supplications to you, we recognize and we remember that the Lord is near and nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So help us to turn our hearts and minds towards you, Lord Jesus, to the cross of Christ and the victory that was won so many years ago, That the sins have been atoned for, that it is finished and that a heavenly realm awaits. And help us to bear witness to the reign of Christ in our lives as we point people to the kingdom of heaven today. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your son who is the Christ and all God's people said, amen.